0: You know, um, I've been thinking about what I'll share with you for some weeks, and uh, well, actually months, and I'm still thinking it through, and I uh, haven't finished. But I want to notice a couple of verses from First Corinthians, the first chapter, where he talks about the little things and that God uses, and the big things that impress man. Can affect how man looks at life and situations. The uh, what I want to notice particularly is in verse twenty-seven, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the larger passage, well, there's a, a lengthy section, but just a few. A little more context, Paul of 27, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. I tend to, I think, maybe many of us do, to look at our situations and our troubles And to gauge, uh, we, we look at those things and we gauge how difficult are they to fix. How easy can they be fixed and solved? And we look at how they can be fixed by our ability, the abilities of our brothers and sisters and doctors and men's expertise, or what resources we have. And if it looks like a great and challenging and daunting obstacle, then we can despair and we can feel hopeless and discouraged and maybe even overcome. But God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things of the mighty God looks at things in a different way, and I just want us to be impressed with God this morning and with his son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, and by thinking about and, and, and uh, noticing how God is and what God does, that it is a great encouragement to his children, a great encouragement. Back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was an escape artist. You may have heard the name Houdini. And uh, he took extraordinary steps to get himself placed into uh, what appeared to be impossible situations and he'd get out of them and amaze people. And one time he was at, the, at Scotland Yard, in, is that in London, I think? And he presented himself to the chief constable there at Scotland Yard, and he was going to arrange to uh, do a demonstration to show him how he could get out of locked places and escape. And the constable, thinking maybe he would just take a little advantage of him, says, "Well, hey, let's do it right now." we'll just march you right back and put you in a cell and lock you up. And they did. They took his clothes from him and locked his clothes in a cell next to where he was locked up. And they locked every door between where he was and the, uh, a metal, a steel gate that led out into a corridor in the, in the jail. And after they he was locked in there and the constable and the, all his deputies and officials with him were out there waiting. Five minutes later, Houdini joined them, coming through that locked steel door. And they were just astonished. And the constable signed a paper of certification that he had done this. escape. great promotion for his, for his show. Throughout history, God's people have have often found themselves at tremendous odds. Things could look very bleak and hopeless. Uh, A good outcome looked very unlikely and nearly impossible. And then God moved and somehow turned what appeared to be a defeat and a terrible situation into a victory that glorified God and spoke to people, man. Sometimes God put his people in positions where... um, it would seem like the he put his own reputation at stake. His his the reputation uh, of his power and sovereignty. Uh brother Dan last week told us about Elijah and uh his experience there on Mount Carmel. And you remember that sacrifice, that altar and and um just covered, sloshed over with water, just soaked with water. So it was not only the challenge of calling on God, uh, a God from somewhere up in heaven that they couldn't see and asking him to uh, put fire on this altar, and here this thing was all wet to boot, how will this ever work? And it worked. Well, Gideon's army fared from thousands down to three hundred. What an unwise move. But God was there. We know those stories. We know that God won. God was glorified. The Lord, he is God, the people cried on Mount Carmel. Sometimes, well, more often, God doesn't tell us, "Okay, let's make a, an impossible situation for yourself." We just find ourselves in difficult situations, and I thought of some people from the Bible that uh, whose, whose circumstances had unraveled to the point that it looked like a total defeat, and then uh, they were restored and renewed and. It went from, their experience went from defeat to victory. We don't know how all they thought about these things as they lived through them, but I thought of Joseph as one example, a teenager, 17 years old, and a good boy uh, from all we can tell. And maybe he was a little too pleased with those grand dreams that he had about himself. Maybe, we can't tell for sure. Uh, But they certainly aggravated his brothers very much, plus the fact that he was favored by his father. The scriptures tell us that. And at some point when his father sent Joseph to uh, see how his brothers were doing and their flocks at some distant place, when the brothers saw him coming, they were um, ready to kill him. They were ready to kill him, their brother, by, I think it was Judah, wasn't it? Reuben. Well, there were two brothers that were sympathetic, Reuben and another one, and I don't, I have to read it again to uh, be sure. Maybe you read it since I But, um uh, the, the one brother who said, let's not kill him, was not there when the Ishmaelites showed up on the scene. And um, so uh, another brother suggested, why don't we sell him to, Egypt, to the uh, Ishmaelites? And that's what they did. And later on, it tells us in uh, chapter 42 of Genesis, that Joseph was understandably, very distressed by what was happening. He was pleading with his brothers, don't do this, don't do this, and they would not hear. And therefore, this distress has come upon us when their situation changed. But there was no mercy. He was carried away to Egypt and sold to Potiphar. And in spite of all the injustice, He was a faithful servant. He was not rewarded for his integrity, but he was betrayed by a lustful woman and falsely accused and ended up in prison. And, you know, looking at that story from a human standpoint, that would be a low point. He could have asked God, where are you? How could things look worse? Far, far from home, innocent, but being treated as though he were guilty, and it just seemed completely wrong. It was wrong. So, what could Joseph do? Of himself, he was helpless. But his faith was intact. And I believe his faith was strong. He prayed, he worshipped, he served God, he obeyed God, he did the right things. And when the time came that Pharaoh had his dream and called Joseph to interpret it, Joseph was ready. And he said, I can't interpret the dream, but God can. My God can reveal it. And we remember the story how Joseph's Status changed, and when his guilty brothers came to Egypt for food, Joseph was in charge. He was up there next to Pharaoh, and he had his brothers under his thumb, so to speak. When his brothers feared Joseph would repay him, them for their sin, Joseph forgave them, and he gave a larger perspective. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God does that. And he's still still doing that. Joseph couldn't see very far ahead. But he could see God. He knew God. He believed God was real. And he wanted to serve God and obey him. Maybe he got discouraged in the prison at times. I don't know. It doesn't tell us a lot about his emotional state through those years. But God uh, brought him from a place of defeat. An awful situation. He brought him through it and out of it and accomplished a purpose. A great purpose. So that's a lesson for us. Now think about Moses, another character in Egypt, rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's court. He was educated with all the learning of Egypt, and he had the world at his fingertips. A lot of opportunities. He also knew that he was an Israelite. And he felt a loyalty to God's people. And he also appeared to feel that he was equipped to deliver his people. We don't know what all his thinking was there, but as we watch him in the narrative there in Exodus, it looks like he was thinking about helping his people somehow. And he took some steps, and one day he was out among the Israelites, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And it says that he looked this way, and he looked that way, and he didn't see any other Egyptians, and he killed that man. A little deliverance on a small scale. And then another day, he went out, and he saw two Hebrews fighting, and one of them was clearly in the wrong. It doesn't describe the whole scene, but Moses said, wait a minute. Why are you beating your fellow Hebrew? Let's not be fighting each other. And at that point, Moses' deliverance program began to unravel. And this, uh, this Hebrew that he had admonished disrespected him. He said, who made you a judge over us? Are you going to kill me too, like you did the Egyptian? And Moses knew immediately that he was in big trouble. And it says that he fled. And whatever dream he may have had of delivering his fellow Israelites was in tatters. And again, we don't know what all he felt. I think I would have felt pretty crushed and grieved and defeated. Who am I to go back there and deliver the Israelites? I guess I misread something pretty bad. And the Egyptian army is a mighty army, Who am I? What can I do? To his credit, he made the best of the situation. He became a shepherd. He did something useful. And years passed. Forty years passed. And then one day, one day he saw a burning bush when God's timing was right. Moses was a different man by then than the self-confident Moses that was correcting his fellows back in Egypt 40-some years before. Now he saw some limitations in himself. It seems like he had a little confidence in what he was able to do. And what God, when God asked Moses to go to Egypt and bring Israel out, the nation of Israel out, of Egypt, Moses said, Not me, surely not me. I have I have handicaps, I have limitations. Who am I? I am too insignificant. And God said, I'll be with you. But who will I say sent me? God said Tell them the I am sent you, but they won't believe me. And God said, you'll show them miracles. But I can't speak. I'm not eloquent, he said. And God said, I made your mouth. I'll be with your mouth. And he included Aaron in the bargain. And Moses, by that time, the Lord was a little bit irritated, the scripture says, with Moses But Moses finally agreed to go. His confidence was restored, but it wasn't in himself. It was in God. And when Israel followed Moses out of Egypt, Moses did not pat himself on the back. He gave God all the glory. And the song of Moses begins this way after they crossed the Red Sea. Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. And Moses often, often reminded Israel of God's great deliverance and of God's power to work in their behalf. A good lesson for us: God can help us in difficulties and help us to see our dependence on Him, and that we need His help and His grace. Our little efforts will will fizzle in accomplishing things for the kingdom. Another one, the nation of Israel had just won a great victory at Jericho, and God had given them instructions for how Jericho was to be conquered. You remember all the going around the city and the number of times they went around, the number of days and all that, and Israel followed those instructions, and when the the walls of Jericho came tumbling down in very dramatic fashion, there's a little town close by named AI. And it was a small town in comparison to Jericho. And Joshua sent some people up there to uh, spy, check it out. And they came back and they advised, don't send the whole army, it's just a small place and 3,000 people should easily do that one. And they were defeated. 3,000 went up there, and they were defeated in a humiliating fashion. And 36 Israelites were killed. Not a victory that compared to, not a victory like Jericho's at all. It was a defeat. There are songs written about the battle of Jericho and the victory of Jericho. I've never heard one about Ai. In Joshua 7, it says that Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth. fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord till evening. And he and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. There are a couple of things that I think about with this this account. One was uh, it seemed like Joshua and the people just kind of went on their own as they went up there to take Ai. They assessed it from their perspective, and they decided what they could do, and it doesn't say anything about them falling on their face before the Lord and asking, would you help us or help us to see what we need here, they kind of went on their own. That's one thing. God didn't really uh, mention that so much, but he did make it very clear there was a problem. There was a reason why they were defeated, and it was because, we know the story, there was sin in the camp. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have transgressed in my covenant which I commanded them, for they have taken the devoted things. We know the story of Achan. and how he took things that he found from Jericho that they were not to touch, not to take. We can't be victorious where there's sin. That was true for Israel. That's true for individuals. That's true for churches. There are consequences. There's defeat. Well, sin is defeat in itself, isn't it? But there's stunted growth. And, fruit, and fruitlessness, service is hindered. A testimony is veiled or is even counterproductive. And God said that sin must be dealt with. I think about the churches in, uh, in Revelation 2 and 3, and uh, for example, in The first one, nevertheless, I have this against you. He gave some compliments. Nevertheless, I have this against you. To most of the churches, there were two exceptions. And he said, remember where you have fallen, from where you have fallen. This was to Ephesus. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly. They dealt with Achan in the Valley of Achor, and then Israel defeated Ai, and God gave them instructions, too, for how to do that, how they were to uh, proceed. And Ai was defeated, Israel was victorious once again. And so, a lesson for us, when we open ourselves and respond to the Spirit's conviction, and we confess, and we repent, we find forgiveness, we find restoration, and renewal, and we can find victory once again. Deal with sin. Repent of sin. Forsake sin. And we're familiar with Paul. These examples were all from the Old Testament. There's uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh. I, I think I may have referred to this uh, in a message not real long ago, or at least for talking to somebody. But uh, we remember the story, how he was, he writes about it in Second Corinthians, about a thorn in the flesh that was a messenger from Satan sent to buffet him. And so... Satan had some kind of a design for this. You can be sure that anything he does, he has some strategy. He's not just doing things to amuse himself um, when he relates to people. He wants to do something that destroys and does damage to people that God loves. And that's everyone. And... The count Paul wrote how he asked three times whether that could be, whether it could be spared, if he could be delivered from that, and Satan was probably hoping that Paul would get discouraged, his situation, some hindrance to his ministry, maybe to how well and easily he could travel, whether it affected his writing, some people think it was a vision problem, And um, we don't really know. But Satan surely had some nefarious purpose, something that would do damage to Paul, that would hinder his mission. And so how is Paul going to respond to this? God had another purpose in allowing it, in allowing Satan to bring that. And God wanted to teach Paul, and he wanted Paul to be impressed with this great truth. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul said, now that I understand that, I will gladly boast in my infirmities, that the power of God may rest upon me. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. a different outlook. Often we don't know what the source of a trial is. But we know what the trial is. And we know how we are responding to it. And God would have us be choose a godly response. We saw that term in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Our time is quickly fleeing. I want to give one other example, and I'll try to just spin quickly through it, but it's very familiar to us because we just went through Easter, and that is Christ's death and resurrection. So first in Christ's ministry, there was opposition. And, you know, in a, a story, I saw this somewhere lately in, in, uh, in a typical novel, there's the introduction of the characters and the setting, and then there's some, some uh, difficulty or challenge to introduce. And that takes a little space to kind of get a handle on that. And then there's a setback. So we were hoping to get this fixed, and here's a setback. And so they're tackling this new problem and struggling with it and maybe being discouraged about it or afraid of it or whatever. And then there's another setback. And that just makes it all more exciting, and we're kind of drawn through what's going to happen. And there's suspense, and, and then it gets wor- worse, and all hope is lost, finally. And then in the last 10%, wonderful. Well, this is a true and marvelous story. So there were steps, and there were setbacks, and degrees of opposition. And then they were plotting against Jesus. And then he was betrayed by a close friend, one of the twelve. And then he was captured. What can be done for him now? The disciples were afraid and ran away. Then he was brought to trial before the Sanhedrin and then before Pilate and before Herod and back to Pilate again. And no pardon, no deliverance. Things were only getting worse And Jesus said almost nothing, and what he did say made them even angrier, and then he was condemned, and led out to the cross, crucified, and he died, and he was buried, and his disciples were sure the world had ended. How could this be? Jesus is dead. Jesus is buried. It is done. Our situation cannot get any blacker. Everything is over. No kingdom of heaven. No Jesus, no promises. Jesus is in the grave. And then came Easter. And hallelujah is right. That terrible story, that terrible situation was just completely turned into a most amazing and miraculous and glorious victory. It wasn't just Jesus brought back to life, but all the enemies, our greatest enemies, Uh, was defeated, totally defeated. From what appeared to be a crushing defeat, a stunning and glorious victory. At Sister Barbara's funeral yesterday, those of you who were were here remember... uh, her Uncle Joe, who spoke for a little while and played the harmonica for us. And one thing he said that I remember was that this is not defeat. This is not the end, this, this coffin and this body and that grave. Christians are on the winning side, he said. And he's exactly right. History shows it. All these stories show it. The best one being the resurrection of Jesus. There's a cloud of witnesses that testify to it in the scriptures and in our experience, people we talk with. Scripture verifies it. We have experienced it. Surely all of us in some measures or other. God is all-powerful. We have that comfort. God is all-powerful. So we look here at a situation that looks impossible. It's not impossible. We don't know how God will move, what all his purposes are in allowing it, and what he wants us to learn, what he wants us to see about ourselves, what he wants us to to change in, what he wants us to confess and repent from, we don't know. But we know that God is allowing it for some reason for us. He is sovereign. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he is a God of love and a God of wisdom. And he cares about these, his disciples, sitting here in this audience this morning. God is strong. We remember that. And God has resources available to us, makes, us, makes his resources available to us, and they are far more than adequate even. You remember the story of Elisha and the servant who uh, saw the, the army uh, out there, whose army was it? Syrian army, around the town where he and Elisha were and he was scared. And Elisha said, uh, he prayed that, that his servant would seek, would open his eyes and see the Lord's army and there is more with us than be with them. And so that was a comfort to the servant and they I'm sure he enjoyed going along with Elisha as they led the Syrian army off to uh, to the uh, Jewish king. But God's resources are way, way more than we can ask or think. Grace and peace being multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, And Jesus said, when Peter made his great confession, that of Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, on this rock, on this confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that is true for each individual, that Satan will not prevail against us as long as we are Christ, The Amplified says, the powers of the infernal region shall not overpower it, or be strong in its detriment, or hold out against it. The New Living Translation says, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. God is never, never defeated. Our God is never defeated. And sometimes, from our perspective, things look pretty bad. But you know, suffering isn't defeat. Humiliation isn't defeat. Grief and sorrows aren't defeat. Hard times aren't defeat. But how we respond and how we avail ourselves of God's grace determines whether we are defeated. When we yield to anger and bitterness, a lack of love or carnality in any form, then we've sinned. We've lost a battle. And Satan is watching all the time for moments of weakness and where he can get an advantage of us and entice us away or whatever, so we're watchful for that. So whatever situation we are in, whatever, however troubling it may seem to us, there is a way from here. God has a way from here for each individual, for each family, for each church. God has a plan and God has resources and he can take what looks bad and looks like a defeat, and change it to a glorious victory. Satan was watching for how he can turn it into a a devastating defeat. But with God's grace, it can turn into a victory that glorifies God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly Above all that we ask or think, according to the power, God's power, that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Shall we have a song?